This is Barry Zalma, Zalma on Insurance. I'm an attorney who has retired from the practice of law and now spend my time as an insurance claims consultant, an expert witness, an author, and producer of these videos. Today I'd like to talk about intentional torts. Negligence, strict liability, absolute liability, and products liability are all accidental by definition. The persons being held liable for injury to the plaintiffs had no intent to harm the plaintiff. Intentional torts, on the other hand, are harmful or offensive conduct intentionally done. If I intend to hit you, but hit someone else, have I committed a battery? Yes. It was the intent to wrongfully touch someone that establishes the tort. That intent is called scienter, which is described as an evil intent. Intentional torts come in many forms, some of which we will describe as this video goes on. Battery is the intentional use of force or violence upon the person of another or the intentional administration of a poison or other noxious liquid or substance to another, such as, I hit you in the nose, or I beat you over the head with a stick. These things are batteries. Assault, on the other hand, is an unlawful attempt coupled with a present ability to commit a violent injury on the person of another. In other words, I try to hit you in the nose, but you duck and I miss you. I could have hit you, but I did not. But I scared you, and that's why you ducked. That's an assault and is different from a battery which requires a touching. A battery occurs when the attempt to commit a violent injury included within the definition of assault is effected and a person is actually injured. Trespass is a intentional tort where a person who comes on the land without privilege or consent of the owner or controller of that land, commits the tort of trespass. A person who trespasses is presumed to have harmed the land. The extent of the harm, of course, is subject to proof. Defamation is an invasion of the interest in reputation. It includes libel, which is a written defamation, and slander, which is an oral defamation. To prove defamation, the plaintiff must show a publication that is false and that has a natural tendency to injure or which causes special damage. The publication must be intended but no malice or ill will is required. The 
Second Restatement of Torts, Section 558, sets forth the legal elements required to prove defamation. 1. False and defamatory statement concerning another. 2. An unprivileged publication to a third party. 3. Fault amounting at least to negligence on the part of the publisher. And 4 either actionability of the statement irrespective of special harm or the existence of special harm caused by the publication. A false statement of fact is actionable if defamatory. Pure opinion, on the other hand, is not. Statements of pure opinion are not actionable as defamation, because they are considered protective speech under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The law distinguishes between pure expression of opinion, which are protected, and false factual statements, which are not. Generally, pure opinion is reasonably understood to be nothing more than the speaker's subjective viewpoint. The objective nature of outrageousness, particularly when applied to rhetoric, eviscerates the protection for speech on matters of public concern or directed at public figures. Because liability under a subjective test is unpredictable, it threatens to curb the use of such persuasive tools as rhetoric and hyperbole in political speech. To prove defamation, therefore, the plaintiff must establish the following elements. 1. Publication. Information is communicated to some third person or persons who understands it is its defamatory meaning and application to the plaintiff. If a statement is made to the defamed person alone, it is not published. I can call you anything to your face without anyone present, and there could never be defamation. Two, the publication must be false. Three, the publication must be made with an intent to say what was said, and four, the publication must damage the plaintiff. The burden of proving actual malice requires the party asserting actual malice to de demonstrate with clear and convincing evidence that the accused party realized that his statement was false or that he subjectively entertained serious doubt as to the truth of the statement. In addition, libel per se includes charges of criminal conduct and charges of misconduct, like stating that a public official is racially prejudiced. The meaning of terms such as actual malice, and more particularly reckless disregard, is not readily captured in one infallible definition, 
And while knowledge of falsity is a clear standard, reckless disregard is more difficult. Reckless disregard is a standard that requires the plaintiff to bring forth evidence that the defendant entertained serious doubts as to the truth of the publication and published it anyway. And those serious doubts had to exist at the time it was published. The intentional torts, except for defamation, are excluded from almost every third-party liability policy since they are not, by definition, fortuitous. Modern liability policies provide coverage for the so-called personal injury coverages that include certain offenses like libel and slander, which are intentional torts. They are designed to provide coverage for the costs of defense of charges of defamation. Providing indemnity under a personal injury coverage can cause problems with the public policy of the various states, since insuring against such a wrongful and intentional tort and providing indemnity would encourage someone to act intentionally to harm another and pass the exposure for that harm on to an insurance company. False imprisonment is a special type of intentional tort and is the unlawful violation of the personal liberty of another. The tort requires direct restraint of the person for an appreciable length of time. The plaintiff must have been compelled to stay or go somewhere against his or her will. The physical force may be slight, like an officer putting his hand on a person's shoulder. Actual force is not essential. The restraint can be by words, gestures, or acts. A false arrest is one way to commit the tort of false imprisonment. Malicious prosecution is an intentional tort that originally was limited to unjustifiable criminal litigation, causing damage to reputation and the expense of defending proceedings. Initiating or procuring the arrest and prosecution of another under lawful process but for malicious motives and without probable cause was found to be tortious. A person who causes a third person to institute a malicious prosecution is also liable as if he or she had personally instituted it. It has often been held that actions for malicious prosecution are, for reasons of public policy, not favored. The tort now applies to maliciously prosecuted civil actions as well as criminal. So to prove the tort of malicious prosecution, the plaintiff must prove that the original criminal or civil case was terminated in plaintiff's favor. A defense verdict, a dismissal 
by the court for failure to state even a cause of action, these can be a termination in the plaintiff's favor. This can be proved by acquittal at trial, dismissal of the case, or a defense verdict in a civil case, a motion, a granting of a motion for summary judgment, or some other way by which the defendant wins the case. Malicious prosecution is not a continuing tort such that an occurrence lasts from the time of filing of the underlying suit until its termination. As a result, the court concluded that the insurer had no duty to defend the malicious prosecution suit because the occurrence was the filing of an earlier action before the policy period began. If there's a false arrest claim, damages for the claim over the time of detention up until issuance of process or arraignment, but not more. From that point on, any damages recoverable must be based on a malicious prosecution claim and on the wrongful use of judicial process rather than the detention itself. At common law, false imprisonment arose from a detention without legal process, whereas malicious prosecution was marked by a wrongful institution of legal process. Here both claims suggest the same result. The presence of a probable cause should generally defeat a First Amendment retaliatory arrest claim. This was the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Yeves v. Bartlett in 2019. This video was adapted from my book, Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 105, Second Edition, which is available as both a Kindle book and a paperback from Amazon.com and is Part 5 of the 10-volume treatise, Zelma on Insurance Claims. If you found this video to be interesting or useful to you and your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my YouTube channel, my Rumble channel, and my blog so that you can be advised of future videos and future blog postings. Thank you for your attention.